And we are very much live, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today in our 149th live stream in the Data on Kubernetes community. As usual, my name is Bart Farrell, a leader here at the Data on Kubernetes community, and very excited to be with you today as we approach this topic of overcoming the challenges of protecting migrating when we're in a multi-cluster, multi-cloud environment. I have two wonderful people that are gonna be with us today to help us out with that. Before we get to that, these two wonderful people as well will be joining us either in person or in spirit in the next DOK Day, which will be on October 24th in Detroit. We'll be doing this event in person, but of course it will also be live streamed. You have all the info about the event right there. Super easy to add to your KubeCon registration. If you're already registered for KubeCon, if you'd like to attend virtually, you just have to add it. If you want to attend in person, have a few more details to check out there. If you have any difficulties registering, please let us know on Slack and we would be happy to help you out. That being said, very happy to welcome two wonderful people from Cloud Casa by Catalogic. I'm sorry, the tongue twister. Cloud Casa by Catalogic. Uh, we were talking about Duolingo before we got started, and that could be included there as well for pronunciation practice. Martin, field CTO, and Sebastian, uh, architect. Very nice to have you both with us today. How are you guys doing? Good, Bart. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Good. That being said, to get a little bit of background, uh, can we start with you, Martin? Can you just give us a little bit of info about your Kubernetes journey, how you got started, and how you encountered first this notion of stateful workloads? Yeah, absolutely. So, hi everyone. My name is Martin Fon. I'm a field CTO here with Catalogic Software. Um, so, I've actually been with Catalogic. We're a data protection company. So, I've been doing data protection, uh, gosh, for over the past uh, uh, fifteen uh, more more than that, actually. Uh, so, I've been doing sometimes a lot of, uh, more than protection. we like to. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, just uh, working in back of the data protection, but uh, you know, with uh, Kubernetes, it was a game changer for me, right? Um, so, I've been working with uh, Kubernetes now for the past couple of years, and we realized that as a data protection company, that um, and users moving into the cloud and stateful workloads and containerized workloads, that data protection would be changing. Um, very drastically from the way in which we think about data protection today. Uh, so we had to change our game as well. And uh, that's how I got my start within Kubernetes and um, you know, just looking more towards uh, uh, learning more about it and sharing some of the information that we uh, have found out in uh, performing these types of different workloads and migrations in data protection within the cloud, so. Awesome, great, like you said, the sort of paradigm shift presented with new challenges, how are we gonna face them? That's exactly what we're gonna be looking at today. And in your case, Sebastian, how did you get started with Kubernetes? Um, so my name is Sebastian Grum. I'm a cloud architect at Cloud Casa by Catalogic. And I started with Kubernetes, I believe in 2020. Um, so I had this Go programming background and I believe like more, you know, almost everyone who knows Go knows the Kubernetes. So uh, I started learning into that as a new technology, something new to learn. And I, you know, instantly fell in love with uh, with this tool, right? Like it's out of killing every, everything. Like it solved a lot of issues in IT. Um, so that's how I started. Then I, uh, you know, found a job at, at Catalogic. I was, uh, I believe, fourth member at Cloudcaster team. So I've seen how it actually grew uh, before even we went, you know, public. Um, and yeah, that's that's how I started. I still develop, uh, you know, in this in this area and still in love with Kubernetes. <laughs> very, very good. Excellent to hear that. That being said, gentlemen, if you want to start sharing your screen so we can take a look at the slides, folks that are in the audience with us on YouTube, as usual, if you've got questions, drop them in there. If not, we can always continue the conversation in Slack, but make sure you get your questions in there so we can address them accordingly. So like I said, if you want to start sharing your screen, go for it. 
I'll go ahead and share my screen here. Um, Perfect. And let me know when you can see that yep, part. Yeah, that's good. Yep. Awesome. So I figure I'll get started here, and then I'll let Sebastian jump in with his. Um, so uh, Sebastian, being the cloud architect, um, he's, uh, he's got a lot of detailed knowledge in terms of how this is all implemented and some of the challenges and hurdles that we've had to overcome in order to uh, support uh, these types of cloud migrations and, and backups of Kubernetes and restores within Kubernetes. Um, but just some level set, uh, hopefully everyone, um, I want to share some uh, th this first slide that I usually uh, do when talking uh, with customers uh, in the field regarding uh, some of Kubernetes strengths and weaknesses. And I think most of the people on this call um, know exactly where the strengths lie. And um, as a data protection company, we've discovered that you know, there are uh, weaknesses um, from a standpoint of a backup and disaster recovery. We want to start simplifying um, these operations um, within our own data protection products that we supported and sold. Uh, but at the same time, we realized that they were, you know, highly sufficient, deficient simply because of the, the paradigm shift with uh, stateful workloads within Kubernetes. And, and as we started developing our software as a service platform in Cloud Casa, um, we, in trying to simplify uh, these backup and recovery workloads, uh, we started realizing that there were a lot more intricacies and details that need to be taken into account in order to, you know, move data between clouds. Well, you know, what uh, differences and and what uniquenesses between clouds um, we'd have to overcome in order to um, su support the these types of migrations. Um, so. What, what we did here, and I'm going to start with a big three. We, we developed this software as a service application called Cloud Casa. And you know, users are moving towards this software as a service, infrastructure as a service. Um, in, in this case, we, we put up here three managed services providers, the big three, Amazon, Azure, and Google. And these just happen to be the three that we also support within Cloud Casa, uh, or we, we've initially started natively supporting within Cloud Casa um, from a, a managed Kubernetes perspective. Um, but the point being is that, um, you know, as we looked at these different cloud providers and how we can go about interacting with them, we discovered that there were some very unique differences in terms of simplifying the ease of use. Uh, right. So, so there are a lot of, you know, cloud providers that support Kubernetes. Uh, here we got like a top three players. It's impossible to pick the best one, you know, all have uh, their own differences, different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but I will give you just a few like uh, features that, that really um, differs them. And, and starting with Google, the oldest player in town, 2015, we, we all know why Google was first, right? Google started with Kubernetes, so they were first to uh, introduce an engine for that. Uh, but great thing about Google, when I was working and um, integrating that with Cloud Casa, I really liked the, the two different ways you've got to manage your cluster. The first one is the standard way, where you just uh, uh, set up all your networking settings, auto-scaling node sizes. And the other one, which I believe they introduced year back in 2021, this is autopilot way, uh, where the Google deals with most, most of the underlying infrastructure. They deal with the auto-scaling. Uh, you got this different pricing model where you pay per pod. Um, so this is definitely nice. Uh, Google has also the great upgrade, uh, uh, upgrade options. Uh, I, I really like that they have this maintenance window where you can specify where you want your upgrade to happen. Uh, this is very nice. Uh, but when it comes to Azure, Azure is definitely the cheapest one out there, I think. Uh, you can buy like the cheapest node is for like 30 bucks and it gets two, two vCPUs and um, uh, four gigs of RAM. So 
sometimes it's it's enough and it can be that very cheap. Um, yeah, so all have different weaknesses. There's no one you can pick uh, for your usage. You, you really need to uh, deep dive into it and select what's best for you. Yeah, that's a good, great point, Sebastian. I think at the end of the day, most users want to have that flexibility and freedom to adopt whatever services provider that you know, best suits their needs, whether that be price or where they're hosting their other applications, uh, corporate standards, right? And, and as Sebastian mentioned, each of these has their own uniqueness and capabilities and, and how we can go about integrating with them um, without having to supply you know, client access and secret keys uh, around um, uh, all over the place, each of them have their own integration points, um, as you saw within that uh, last chart there from um, Azure Resource Manager versus CloudFormation Stack, uh, what have you. Um, th these are exactly the, the ways in which we are interacting with uh, these different cloud accounts. And, and I, it's going to be the ways in which we uh, we, we discover um, and add other cloud accounts that we support natively. Um, but we want the user to be able to take advantage of you know what uh, Kubernetes service works best for them, right? And each of them are going to have their own uniqueness as well, um, from the the storage uh, providers uh, that they they have. Um, for example, uh, Azure Block versus Azure File, um, Amazon EBS, uh, CSI EFS storage, uh, Google um, Compute uh, Persistent Disk. So each of these. Um, uh, cloud service providers are going to have their own unique storage classes. And these are some of the considerations that you'll need to take into account when moving between the infrastructure. What, what happens if I'm moving between, let's say, EBS or CSI or Azure Disk versus Azure File? They're going to each have their own uniqueness. Uh, so right. not all C... Go ahead, Sebastian. Uh, no, I was ju just wanted to mention that you know, CSI is a standard, right? And, and every CSI uh, driver seems to be equal, but they actually uh, differ for, from each other, right? Uh, so here we attach a screenshot from uh, a you know, list of the drivers, just, just a part of it. There are a bunch of drivers. Uh, so you can see here uh, some of the Azure ones. But uh, the interesting case that we come across not that long ago was definitely Azure files, right? Um, so what we found interesting in Azure files was that this CSI drivers, uh, CSI driver allow you only to take the snapshot, but you cannot use this driver to restart from this snapshot. Um, so, so that is a problem, right? If you back up your data and then a disaster happens, you want to restore. And as uh, Microsoft acknowledged in their documentation, uh, you can do a restore only uh, using either portal, Azure portal, or using uh, the Azure CLI. Uh, so that is, of course, problematic because as far as I remember, in Azure portal, you can restore one file by one and you need to create each directory manually. And with the CLI, most probably you would need to write some, uh, some sort of a script that will restore the files for you. Um, so that was a challenge. And how we in CloudCasa, we solved that, uh, I'll give you a super high level overview. Um, so when we come across a PV that uses Azure file CSI driver, and that PV needs to be restored, what we will do, we will uh, find the right Azure file share. Uh, then when, you get, when we get the file share, we will find the right snapshot. And then we will file our data mover that uses official uh, Azure SDK and just restore automatically the files for you. Um, so you can see as a concept, it's, it's super simple. Uh, I try to make it as simple as possible, not to get you bored. 
Uh, but if you want to know, get to know some, some details, uh, you can definitely visit our blog post. Um, so uh, at cloudcasa.io slash blog, there's this blog post where we give more details how that automated restore from Azure Files really works. Uh, so I really encourage you guys to, to read that and, and give us some feedback. Yeah, that, that's great. And I, I actually read through this blog post as well. I shared uh, across uh, the, the field and customer base here the, for those interested or actually using um, their Kubernetes services or, or uh, Azure AKS uh, Kubernetes services within their implementation. And, and we, we get questions like this, right? Um, you know, how do you handle the differences between Azure Disk and Azure File? Um, because the, the scripts that they, and the backup policies that they use to maintain uh, their restores will not work within that space. So uh, I think, you know, as I say, we can resolve things with software, and and here we um, we did that um, using you know our partnership with Microsoft and using other API sets um, that are detailed within this blog post to uh, to to work around um, that issue uh, with uh, supporting the Azure Files environment. And, and this kind of comes into play um, with you know the scenarios of cross-cluster and cross-cloud migrations, right? Um, you're moving, let's say, a, a Kubernetes cluster from Amazon to, to Azure. You're going to need to take that into account. And there are various different reasons why you'd want to move uh, one workload, uh, workload from one cluster to another cluster. You know, you just corporate standard, let's say. You're just trying to clone the environment. You're going to try to migrate to different cloud, cheaper uh, storage class. Um, and it's important to if you can to abstract you know that level of detail especially if you don't want to be bothered by it you, you know kubernetes has certainly made things um much simpler in terms of uh, at least uh, migrating and standing up stateless workloads and what we're trying to do is ensure that you have the the plans in place for for standing up stateful workloads and there there are going to be some challenges in that as well Right. So, so uh, one of the challenges that generally, you know, clusters are isolated in terms of uh, storage and networking, right? Clusters do not know each other. Uh, and if you want to, uh, let's say, migrate your PV data, you don't want to expose that PV to a public network, obviously. Um, uh, so so that, that is a problem. You've got different storage classes. Uh, so giving you an example, if you want to migrate, let's say, for from EKS that uses EBS CSI driver, and you want to migrate your data to a different cluster, let's say it's EKS, but it uses this native EBS volume, you need to have a storage class mapping for that to make sure that the persistent data gets transferred. Uh, uh, gets transferred. And same goes for even cross-cloud, right? If you want to migrate from, uh, let's say, AWS to Azure, you've got your EBS volumes on AWS, and you get Azure disk on, AK, uh, on AKS. You need to have a storage class mapping that will allow you to change the type of a storage um, so another problem is obviously there is no native Kubernetes support for that. There are some uh, common and well-known tools like Valero and Restic. Uh, I think everyone that started with data protection knows about Valero and Restic. Uh, but both those tools have some uh, you know, issues when it comes to multi-cluster or multi-cloud setup. So starting with Valero, you need to install Valero on each cluster that you have. And that, that becomes difficult when you have a multi-cloud or multi-cluster setup, because um, setting up Valero differs for each cloud provider that you have. So giving you an, a, a Azure as an example, uh, for Azure, you need to create a resource group in your preferred location. You need to create a storage account. 
Then for that storage account, you need to create a blob container. And then finally, you need to create and manage a service principle uh, that uses a contributor role. And then here's a, a security concern. Uh, I, I can see that uh, the contributor role has a subscription-wide access. And this is the second most powerful role in Azure. So if your credential gets leaked, uh, you know, someone can delete your resources in, in Azure. And obviously, you don't want that. Um, or for example, for uh, Google, for Google Cloud, uh, what you need to do in order to set up your storage for Valero is you need to create a GCS bucket, uh, and that preferably should be one per cluster. And once you have that, you need to create a service account, custom role, and that bind that all together for every project that you have. And the issue here is that, uh, you know, a uh, structure of Google Cloud looks like you've got your organization and within organization, you've got multiple projects. So you need to repeat that step for every project you have. So we already see that even if you use one cloud, but multi-cluster, this, uh, this is becoming extremely difficult to maintain. Uh, but other issues with Valero is that you don't have any central logging or uh, central, you know, storage credential management. Uh, and also what's important when you have multi-cluster or multi-cloud setup, you should have a one place from where you can manage all your clusters or their backups and restores when necessary. And that is not supported with Valero. Uh, so giving you also a reward example, uh, at, at KubeCon in Valencia in May, we met one customer and they've been using automated Valero. So they wrote their own scripts uh, that would automate their Valero backups uh, but still, they were looking desperately for a solution that will allow them to manage that from one place, because even with automated scripts, uh, it becomes uh, hard to maintain uh, such, such, such backup management. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a great point, Sebastian. I, I actually am talking with a, another customer where I was, uh, you know, we were trying to get to the bottom of uh, their infrastructure, and I asked them how many clusters they're running, and they shrugged their shoulders. They had no idea. Um, and I asked them how many, you know, cloud accounts that they had, and they, they were like, oh, we have 100 AWS cloud accounts, right? Um, with From which there, there could be, you know, tens to, uh, to hundreds of clusters being managed by each cloud account. So, I mean, it, it could scale rather rapidly, um, you know. So, it, you know, having something like Valero is, can be good for a handful of clusters, but as your deployments start growing and your infrastructure starts scaling at, at Kubernetes scale, um, you know, having that centralized uh, management plane is going to be absolutely key and critical to your environment. But I, I think there are some other um, challenges with the uh, Valero and Rustic um, performance-wise that, uh, you know, I think you can share too here as well, Sebastian. Uh, right. So. So at Cloudcastle, we got our own data mover that transfer content of the persistent volume. But before we started writing our own data mover, uh, we compared both RESTIC and Copia, both are very common uh, backup tools. Um, so when we started comparing RESTIC, uh, the main reason why we decided to go with Copia was a pool restore speed. And I thought I touched here a comment by, by David, our principal engineer who has uh, great experience in, in data management and data protection industry. Uh, so we can see here that the RESTIC was using 100% CPU and in 16 hours, we were only able to restore 15 gigabytes at a speed of 0 0.25 megabytes per second. And that is extremely slow, right? You're living in a world where your business runs on data and you don't want to tell your customers that, hey, if there was a disaster, we are recovering from it. 
but it will take us like here in the comment two months to to be back back in business you don't want to tell your users or customers something like this um, also the issues with Restic is did not go very well with parallelism or dealing with small and large fires uh, so I touched here a, a screenshot from, from from an Excel sheet uh, that David wrote. So uh, the first section over here is is a backup, and, and the bottom one is is a restore. So if you take a look at the backup, uh, Restic one terabyte one file. It took four hours to do a backup, uh, but you see in Copia, this is the third entry here. Also one terabyte, but one hundred files. Parallelism set to sixteen, and it took us one hour and fifteen minutes. Uh, to, to back up such amount of data. So this is almost, this is more than three times faster than Restic do. Uh, but the biggest difference you can see is uh, when it comes to restore. So, so the first entry on the, in the bottom section, you can see a Restic uh, only 15 gig gigabytes and it took more than 16 hours to restore. And when you see the third entry, so Copia 1.5 terabyte parallelism set to 16, that is only four hours. So we see a massive difference over here between Copia and Restic. Uh, but also why we decided to use Copia on our backend was that uh, most of our components, microservices that we have are written in Go. And, and uh, Copia has a very well written Golang code and that made our process uh, really easy. Yeah, absolutely. So, and and you can see a, a lot of uh, this taking the best of breed in terms of uh, functionality and performance uh, code uh, that's out there, and then customizing it to uh, the the use cases that that you would need, right? Um, whether that be performance um, in, in the backup or, or performance within the restore. Obviously, we we um, sharing with you some of the. Um, alternatives and methodology that we went to and the reasons why. Um, but being the backup company that we are, um, you know, and as you start thinking about backup and restore, just as part of your, your day to, you know, implementation of stateful workloads within Kubernetes, I think it's important to, to realize that you should think of your backups as more than just insurance policies, right? And with Kubernetes, right, we have the ability to, to take uh, local snapshots to the, the CSI drivers. And as we learned, CSI drivers are not all created equally, but in order to ensure that backup, we need to move it, right? So what do you use as a data mover, whether that's Restic or Culpia, right? Um, depending on the choices that you go with it is going to determine how uh, quickly and easily you can spin up that data copy. But uh, the important thing being is that we wanna look at uh, these copies as more than just insurance policies, right? The reason why most of you are here is to learn you know, how we can move this data around between uh, different clusters quickly and easily um, through uh, services or, or through uh, custom options, what options are actually available uh, that you have out there. Um, sort of automating a restore process, if you will. Um, and you know, in uh, Sebastian's example, where he had a customer Running their own custom scripts in order to uh, around Valero in order to perform this backup restore, they were running into their own challenges with regards to, you know, do they have to modify or, or rewrite this script um, based off of scanning a new account? Will, let's say they want to spin up an entire new cluster from scratch. You know, would they need a standby cluster, or can they create a, an entirely new cluster uh, from scratch um, when performing that restore? Uh, and then ultimately just having the knowledge of how each cluster is structured from the storage classes and providers that it has to offer um, to um, the, the 
let's say the configuration of the cluster itself within the entire architecture. So key taking into account, you know, what you're restoring, um, how many nodes, what type of scalability, what type of customizations. If you want to remap storage, um, rename your namespaces, perform this cross cluster type restore. These are all things that you should be thinking about um, when you are moving data between clouds or, you know, even on-prem to off-prem. Uh, right, so so cluster recoveries are also an interesting topic uh, because uh, Valero, as well as other vendors, when you need to perform a, a migration, uh, you need to spin up a new cluster on your own. So you need to deal with all the uh, networking, load balancers, add-ons, uh, node settings, installing the backup agent manually, setting up the access to storage. All of that you need to do on your own. And that is a multi-step process that you know very often take long hours to finish. Um, so uh, how we solved that issue in Cloud Casa is that we decided not only to protect your data, but also the infrastructure. And how we are making that is, is very also simple. Um, so you've got this option to add your cloud account, for example, AWS or Azure. Uh, once you add your account and you do a backup of, of your cluster, because we discover all the clusters automatically along with the resources that are required. Um, so uh, once you do a backup, uh, before we take a backup of your data and persistent volumes, uh, we will take a we'll take a backup of uh, your cluster settings. So all the nodes, uh, networking settings, all of that, we will take a backup. So when it comes to restore, when you want to restore your cluster, we can now fully recreate your cluster with the exact same settings like you had, uh, or you can even modify the input. So let's say uh, the workload in your cluster increased and you need to have a bigger VM size, that's not a problem. You can select a bigger VM and the rest of the settings will remain the same. And same goes you know, backwards. If you want to, for example, uh, go from auto scaling to a static node count, that's also not a problem. Uh, you, you can do that. Um, so so uh, to sum it up, this is very important, not to only protect your data, but also protect your infrastructure. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Sebastian. And, and by scanning in the infrastructure and knowing exactly what's out there, exactly how the node groups are configured and what permissions they're configured with, we can very easily spin up these clusters um, in our uh, in the cluster BMR process um, through you know our, our software as a service in Cloud Casa. Um, and and then you know other things that you know you would need to think about, especially when you're talking about centralizing management of Kubernetes backups, as we do within our software as a service application within Clacasa. Um, but we, you may be someone who is looking to backup to your own storage, um, as uh, Sebastian mentioned. Um, that cluster may not even have access to the public internet, right? Um, so uh, you may have configured the cluster using private link um, functionality within Azure, AWS. And um, the, these are just other considerations that we've taken into account or the, the within Cloud Casa that you would also need to take into account, especially if you know, you're know you dealing with clusters that aren't able to talk to one another. So. Uh, right, so, so we, we already noticed that a lot of cloud providers they introduce a new services that uh, allows you to keep your like a connection more private, right? So, so great example is Azure Private Link or AWS Private Link. So, uh, for both cloud providers, that works the same. And how that works is that the network traffic that uses private links does not traverse the public uh, public internet, right? So, it reduces the exposure to DBOs 
brute force attacks along with some other threats. Um, so, so what exactly is Azure Private Link? Uh, it's just uh, a service that enables uh, access to Azure services like uh, Azure Storage, SQL uh, databases, Azure AKS, over a private endpoint in your virtual network. Uh, so in short, it just you know, acts like a bridge between your virtual network and Azure services. And what the private endpoint is, is nothing but just a uh, network interface that uses private IP address within your virtual network. Um, so, so that is the description about what, where is the challenge, right? Uh, so the challenge is with accessing the data, how you can upload the data to a storage that has no public endpoint. And how we, how we solve that, the Kafkaasa team uh, introduced something called proxy cluster to bring your own uh, storage feature. And how, how that works is, is um, whenever you add your own storage, you can select that your storage is isolated and you will be prompted to select a proxy cluster. And that proxy cluster is just a Kubernetes cluster that has Kafkaasa agent installed on it. Um, and uh, every like an object store operation will go through that cluster and the update any uh, uh, update push or, or delete operation will go through that uh, and and that's how we support that but uh, I believe we haven't tested it but it should be also possible to set up Valero in a such way that it can use also the private endpoint and private links uh, so this is something to, to be tested from our side but uh, I'm pretty sure it should be it should be possible. Yeah. yeah, thanks for the additional detail. So that uh, you know, that proxy server is a, a great tool for kind of exposing, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the, the traffic that that should remain internal and private. Um, Real, just uh, a quick question. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we got a couple. We got a. We got something. You know, Ravi mentioned that he thinks that uh, restore should be automated in the CI/CD pipeline and automate testing of restore. Agree? Disagree? Any thoughts on that? So, so did, did you want to take a stab at this uh, first, uh, Sebastian, or? Um, so, so, so can you repeat the question? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, yeah. of course. No, yeah. it, it's more just, a, more just a comment, but just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. So the idea here is that, yeah, so Ravi says that, you know, that ideally that, you know, restore should be automated in CICD pipelines and automate testing of restore. Uh, right, so, so uh, I actually agree with that. So. Uh, you know, I'm, I came from a tech background, so I'm not a big UI fan. Uh, you know, whenever it's possible, I, I like to use uh, so some bash scripts and all of that. Um, so, so in order to use CI/CD pipelines, you don't want to use UI, right? You need to have some sort of an access, uh, like a CLI tool or uh, using, uh, for example, API calls, right? So this is something that we also support. We haven't mentioned it here, uh, but we do support. Uh, uh, REST calls with an, something called API key, so we can use curl, Postman, uh, anything that you like, and you can you can do you can automate the restore using uh, using that feature. Okay. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Uh, so it's, and just add to some of the automation. So um, that same customer as I was, I was referring to, right, uh, from a a provisioning and backup and recovery perspective, right? Uh, they are moving stateful volumes or persist these persistent volumes across. Uh, their their clusters, right? Um, so when they provision a, a cluster, which they do so through automation, um, at the same time through these REST API calls, and, and um, they're able to 
provision a, a backup policy, a, ba a backup job, uh, provision a restore policy that just restores and recovers the, the persistent volumes to a, a separate workload and, and uh, a graph or a chart um, whenever they need it, um, you know, in the central management plane for uh, determining their at risk and um, uh, whether or not they'd be meeting their SLAs uh, should uh, things ever go down and they're not able to, uh, they, they lose all their stateful data. So. Very good point. Cool. Great. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we've kind of learned this, a lot of this through our history as a data protection company, right? Um, and data protection has evolved quite considerably since, you know, I was doing data protection with tapes and, you know, eventually that merged to disks. Uh, but we still, you know, should look at data protection in, you know, this three, two, one rule. And this is kind of the principles that we've uh, maintain when developing it and looking at uh, a simple solution that could help protect your uh, Kubernetes and, and cloud native workloads environments. And, and that three, two, one simply means maintain three copies of your data, uh, two copies uh, on different sets of media, one copy, at least offsite. Uh, in this case, you replicate copy uh, to uh, a different object storage or maybe even your own storage provider, and then uh, a, a verified copy for recovery or, or uh, a locked, uh, an object locked copy um, that you can use uh, for recovery here. And with these principles, um, you know, we've, we've developed, a, uh, cloud costs behind um, establishing these principles such that they could use these for their workloads as they move it or look to move you know, the, their services and their applications into the cloud. I, I mean, our own uh, product, which started the company, is now being containerized, right? So we can see these uh, uh, enterprise, large monolithic applications being containerized, uh, getting moved into the cloud but the, the mindset should still always be there um, from a backend recovery perspective from which you can uh, glean other use cases like uh, migration and, and test and disaster recovery. But you need to think about, you know, the, the recovery time and, and compliance, right? And how you can very easily uh, ensure that you're backing up what you need to back up, right? Um, uh, customers don't know or, or there'll come a point where customers will not know how much infrastructure or resources and services they have out there. You know, um, and it happened with VMs, right? In, in physical server hardware, where it's like, I, I could count the number of servers I have in my hand. I, well, I won't be able to tell you the number of VMs, but I still wanna make sure that they're all protected, right? And by scanning in uh, a, a cloud account or talking to the uh, managed service provider directly, you want to be able to, you can perform that audit discovery, ensure that you're never missing a cluster because you're, you're backing up and protecting at the um, managed service provider perspective. And, and from that perspective, you can also uh, capture the, the configuration of the cluster, right? Which will help you then um, recover that into an entirely new cluster, into an entirely different region. Um, while recreating it uh, from scratch, basically recovery through code, uh, as we call it, without the need to have to maintain a standby cluster that is just sitting around wasting resources, waiting for a restore to take place, right? Um, you look at, uh, as Sebastian mentioned, you look at all the, the uh, processes that you would need to go through in order to just spin up a cluster. Is it gonna be connected to the network? Um, does it have public, private IP access? Who's gonna have access to this cluster who can, um, scan in and, and register into their, their console, right? 
um, these per types of uh, configuration and permission issues can all be recovered and, and handled uh, through recovery through code. And um, I, I didn't want this to be too pitchy with Cloud Casa, but just some of the um, uh, you know challenges that, that we ran across uh, when developing our, our Cloud Casa, our software as a service application known as Cloud Casa. So this is you know backup as a service for Kubernetes, in which we were. Um, hosted in the cloud. So uh, there is no infrastructure application that you would need to install. It's just a portal that you would go in and, and log in to, um, to um, set up policy and, and back, back, define backups and restore policies uh, for uh, the clusters that you have running in the cloud or, or on-prem. And, and this is an entirely free service um, that you can use for free. If, you, if you're just looking to, to manage snapshots, let's say you're looking or you're outgrowing the capabilities of Valero, your infrastructure is kind of starting to encompass a, uh, a cloud-centric approach in addition to on-prem. So you're kind of in this hybrid cloud operating environment. More users are now starting to come onto it. Um, definitely sign up for your free account uh, because that's going to allow you to uh, define policy, take local snapshots of your uh, infrastructure environments, perform restores, um, provide that level of self-service uh, back and recovery um, uh, to your users. So your user doesn't need to understand the, the intricacies and the differences of, of what happens if I'm trying to restore my cluster from uh, an Azure disk to an Azure file, right? Uh, I can uh, make use of, of a almost a, a wizard-like environment to, uh, to recover that application by myself. So here's just some screenshots. There's, uh, since we're all on YouTube here, um, you can check out our YouTube page. Uh, there's some videos of uh, some demos posted there on YouTube, but just some screenshots to, to help get you started in visualizing what Cloud Casa would look like from a, a screenshot and dashboard perspective. So we're looking at the entire environment, right? We've discovered, uh, you, you've simply scanned in your, your cloud accounts um, from Azure, uh, AWS, Google, right? Um, you, you scan in your on-prem clusters and we're telling you exactly what you're protecting and what you're at risk uh, for. Um, all your data policies are, are gonna be here. Um, in terms of discovery from cloud accounts, all you're doing is simply providing us with a, 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 a access portal into your cloud account. So we're gonna launch CloudFormation Stack, Azure Resource Manager, um, Google Compute Engine um, to gain access to your uh, your clusters or, or your cloud accounts and then perform an audit discovery on your environment. And you can see all the different clusters that are out here that we've discovered installing um, the, or configuring it to Cloud Casa by deploying and pushing on an agent is just as simple as clicking on the install button here within this screenshot and uh, wrong way. And this is just some uh, screenshots of, of recovery from backup, how easy it is to do. We're keeping a catalog, right? Hence the name Catalogic Software, right? We're keeping a catalog of all the different recovery points that you have out there. It's going to look exactly the same uh, as you move between the different clouds. Uh, but um, based off of what you want to recover, where you want to recover it to, it's all going to be um, driven uh, by uh, these policies that you can create within the UI or executing just uh, through a, a REST API call uh, within uh, the command line uh, using a REST API key. So, uh, and I think that's about it for our presentation, but um, Bart, are, are there any questions out there? Yeah, you know, one of the things that came up in the very beginning and, you know, you were mentioning about, okay, people are looking at different cloud vendors. We're very much in this cloud native space. 
there are different factors that have to be taken into consideration. This is a sort of open question, but something that came up uh, not that long ago in a, in a conversation about storage when a particular enterprise was faced with deciding which storage vendor was gonna be the best and looked at different reports. One of the things they mentioned though is a key factor that they were actually putting beyond all the others was the importance of establishing a good relationship with, with partners on the other end in the sense that there can be great technologies, but if there aren't great people that you can count on to be able to troubleshoot, because let's face it, some of the stuff you're saying involves a lot of steps, can be quite timely. How do you approach that human factor? And how do you, in, in Catalogic Cloud Casa, approach that in order to make sure that you're getting the right fit? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question, Bart. So, um, I, so I, I think with Catalogic Software, you know, and all the products that we've developed uh, along the way, we've taken a, a very much vendor agnostic approach um, to uh, data protection, right? So we understand that there are a lot of different options out there from, let's say, tape libraries to, to storage vendors to cloud vendors. And we want to actually uh, allow our customers to, to make use of, you know, whatever decision that they would like to go through um, without, uh, you know, changing the way in which they would, you know, create a, a policy within our own product, right? Um, so we are very much open and have been a very big proponent of you know, storage and, and cloud vendor products. Um, we've actually uh, had a, 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 a webinar session an hour ago with um, a, a cloud uh, container storage uh, provider on that. Um, but, uh, you know, we are not going to limit you in terms of, you know, what storage, um, you are selecting, uh, of course, you know, there are some things out of our control, like be, being the CSI drivers that, uh, you know, the, not all being created equally uh, as we discovered within, you know, uh, representing or discovering Azure files versus Azure disk. But as I say, you know, a lot of problems in today's world can be resolved via software and being the software development company that we are, we can, uh, we, we, we're striving to, to solve those issues and, and make things a lot simpler for, you know, end users that are just embarking on the space and, and really don't want to bother with setting up, you know, uh, a, a Valero or a custom application, um, simply sign on to uh, uh, and sign up for a free account on our portal and start immediately managing their backups through Cloud Casa. Gotcha. No, very, very good points all across the board there. And, and like you said, because for some people, this, this can be daunting. Kubernetes can be challenging as it is when it comes to data, this sort of, you know, way of looking at for a lot of folks still might be leave it alone. Don't touch it. You know, it's, it's best where it is, but some people are more and more organizations are making these transitions and they they're left with these questions. How are we going to go about this? And, and what Sebastian was mentioning as well too, is that if you make a bad choice and you're left with a very, very slow solution, time is money and it's going to be bleeding the most precious value, you know, valuable asset that, that a company has. Um, Sebastian, when, you know, entering an organization and having to convince folks that this is the right way to go, what are, I don't know, are there any tips, tricks, or metaphors that you might use that might make the conversations easier for some people that might be reluctant to, to adopt some of these strategies? Oh, well, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, like when I joined two years back, uh, you know, I was full of enthusiasm. That, that was my like a first job. I'm, I'm still in. Uh, uh, something to make easy. Uh, you know, it's hard to come up with something right now. That's okay. Um, no, but I mean, is there anything, I mean, because we, we've heard like lots of different things, you know, like say, uh, you know, the Kelsey Hightower example of Kubernetes being a post office or things like that. But when we're looking at data, some might say the data is an anchor that keeps your boat stable. 
you lift your anchor when you need to go to another place and then you put it back down, different ways of looking at it. But what are some of the things that you find that people might not be so sure about the sort of, you know, anticipation of if something goes wrong here, I don't want to be held responsible. What are the things that people seem to be concerned about? Um, so people mo most concerned about, I believe, uh, when it comes to, you know, like a backup and all of that, their data management is is definitely privacy and security of their data, right? Uh, this is this is something very important. Like I mentioned, every business runs on data and you need to keep in mind that your data needs to be protected and it must be protected securely. Um, so I believe that this is uh, this is the biggest concern. And that's what we mentioned on slides, right? Use your own storage if you can and use those services like Azure private links. It really reduces your exposure, you know, drastically. It's uh, you become your business and your data becomes much, much more safer. Very, very good point. Like you said, privacy and security. No one wants to be you know, held accountable for not protecting uh, the privacy and security of someone's data. So, I mean, we're all very conscious of, we have governments regu regulating these things. We have different, different things we have to keep in mind. So I think those are all good points to keep in mind when people are having these conversations, like these conversations are going to happen. So we have to anticipate the doubts and the issues. Got another question. Is this only Azure to AWS S3 or are other transfer types supported? So as of now, right, when you when you create a cluster, let's say you back up Azure AKS cluster, you can recreate AKS cluster. When you create AKS cluster, you can also recreate AKS cluster. Um, I'm not sure if I can say, but something is going to change in that matter uh, in, in a very short period of time. Uh, but as of now, if you have AKS, you can recreate AKS. If you have AK, uh, if you have Azure, you can create Azure cluster. If you have AWS cluster, you can create AWS cluster as of now. Okay, all right. Very, very good. Um, well, that being said, that was a wonderful presentation. Great job to both of you, very dynamic. It's not the easiest topic to address. And I think you're handling it very, very well in a very concrete and practical way. Um, once again, I think for, for some folks out there, you know, Kubernetes might be challenging. Then we get into these day two questions. And for some folks, it gets really challenging. So breaking it down and showing there are steps that can be gone through and these things can be taken care of. Sometimes we heard folks say, you know, like you need to have a backup and restore solution no matter what. And I think people are, are relatively aware of that, but I think that might oversimplify um, the, the notion and some of the very things that you were explained today. So like I said, very grateful for that presentation. Looking forward to more in Detroit, right on October 24th. If you can stop sharing your screen really quickly so that I can share mine. Um, just before we finish up. So as is tradition in the data on Kubernetes community, while you wonderful gentlemen were sharing your presentation, we have an amazing artist who's creating an artistic depiction of what you were talking about. His name is Angel, he's extremely talented. So here you can see the stuff that he was working on, see people moving through different clouds, uh, lots of different action going on there. Um, but I think it's a nice summary of the, the things that were discussed today. Thank you both very much for joining us. And thanks to the folks out there for your questions. If you have any further questions, please feel free to get them in Slack. We'd be happy to address them. Uh, we had Safia mentioning that we could probably take, a, take this topic a little bit further, another session to focus more specifically on the automation with CI-CD pipelines. Seems like there's some genuine interest in that. Um, so I look forward to that as well as many other conversations with the folks from Casa Bike. Cloud Cost of my Catalogic. I will improve my pronunciation on that next time. Um, until then, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, all. Thanks, Mark. All right, take care. Cheers.